Hello, everyone. I am not Trent Luce. This is Amanda Radke filling in for the boss man for this exciting edition of Roll Route. And as Trent would say, Roll Route is the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is discuss the issues between rural and urban America. Joining me today, you know him well, is Mr. Jay Truitt uh, from Missouri. Welcome. Good to be here. Here for your premiere show. <laughs> you, you know, I don't know if this is a hostile takeover or if Trent is going to be happy he did this, but the sky is the limit. Uh, we could talk about just about anything. <laughs> yeah. With, you know, so listen, the good thing is it's not Andrew that's taking over. It's Amanda. And I, everybody knows I love Andrew to death. But I don't understand everything the guy says. And at least I all you could call me almost any bad name and I would, would probably understand it some of his bad names. The vernacular from Missouri to South Dakota would probably be pretty similar, I would guess. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, know, by by def, by default, oh. there's probably gonna be new listeners that are going to tune in just because I'm hosting today. And I'd like, if you could, just to, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and why you're the political commentator week after week on Trent's show? <laughs> well, so it is kind of funny, right? I'm a farm kid. Uh, I was born in West Texas. Uh, my family farming operation from West is uh, farming and cattle operation. I was born on a corn and cotton and a and a cattle and uh we decided to move to uh uh southwest missouri and serve water and green grass right that's what it was all about um i wanted to focus on the cattle side of the business uh, he kind of left the side behind and uh to missouri i graduated from uh el Dorado springs high school um a long 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 ago um, which is kind of interesting because uh, later on it becomes important. Uh, classmates of mine included, or people that I knew and went to school with, were Don Nicodem and Ron Plain. Um, uh, Kyle Vickers was one of those people. State of Missouri, those people were all ended up being in leadership positions in agriculture, which is kind of funny because El Dorado is a tiny little burg of a tank. And at one point right. we were all working at the same time. People thought there's kind of weird conspiracy in the water. <laughs> Why are all the people involved in the meat industry? Uh, Ron yeah. Plain was the economist for the pork industry for decades and decades. And uh, I just thought he was a guy that lived up the road, you know. So I kind of got, we kind of got. Um, after uh, after high school, went to the Air Force. I did a little stint uh, at the academy. Entered in, ended up in an international studies program. Um uh, uh, my education uh, uh, at multiple different places. It was all said and done. Uh, I did my tour of duty and I came back home to the family farming and ranching operation. Um, uh, well, actually, after several years uh, of that, closing one of the uh, divisions of the operation, the back just didn't need it anymore. And uh, genetics had outgrown me to back background any cattle and so uh 
Jay was altered to another career, and uh, I spent a little, I've kind of bobbed around for a couple of, uh, did some pipeline welding. I'm a pretty good, uh, and it's not like I'm applying for a job anywhere at this point. Um, I, uh, uh, I did, which came back later to haunt me. And uh, I also uh, ended up just by a weird chance able to read a DTN machine and uh, a guy at Kansas uh, uh, Broadcasting uh, asked me if uh, while they were trying to hire my wife, he was for and I ended up being on the radio at KMZU in Carrollton, Missouri. And uh, lo and behold, that lasted for several years. And I went to the Missouri Soybean Program's office, uh, went to the Missouri Cattlemen's Association from there, National Cattlemen's Association from there, ran there for a few years uh, on some of the issues. It was during some tough times. Um, the Tax Coalition for President Bush uh, in 2002, 2003. Um, and then uh, I, uh, I started my own lobbying firm in 2007. And I think that's probably one of the great things I feel like I did for myself, right? Um, really just because I got to pick and choose, and we decided to just pick some interesting news. Uh, I ended up in, uh, uh, over time, and uh, we, we developed a, kind of a specialty in doing uh, tax, trade, and agriculture, food, and industry issues. We represented most uh, family-sized retailers in the United States. Uh, we're on our client list. Um, and uh, all the people that were exporting live animals and all the trying to import or export fruit and vegetables ended up on the list. And so uh, I ended up actually working in a bunch of different countries around the world. Uh, later, uh, I actually did some contracts with other countries so that we try to figure out how to help them uh, buy or sell items into the United States. So it was a fun, great time. I kind of semi-retired in uh, uh, 20, uh, I don't know, say 2022. Uh, in, in about 2014, we started construction in Dallas as well. And uh, it took up a portion of my time. And uh, I lived in Puerto Rico during that time period. And uh, my wife and I lived there for a And now we're back here so that we can be closer to our parents and all the all the people who are getting older. So it's fun. But back to farm boy, Trent teases me about it. <laughs> well, there's just something special about the farm anyway. So I'm glad you've been able to go back home. Sure. And I... I I want to say I don't. You probably don't remember me, but I was a beef ambassador uh, with the cattle women, like oh, 07. Yeah. 07. So that's I think that's where our paths probably first crossed. But I was just yeah. you know a snot nosed kid, and you were a serious lobbyist at the time. So I don't. Yeah, that that would have been around oh, the yeah. same time frame. And, no, and and again that same time frame was. I mean, there were again a lot of tough issues to talk about so we did pay attention i do remember you and we we kind of trent and i trent made me kind of keep a little bit uh over oh. the years as you kind of develop and hone your craft right but we i mean we always i think a lot of us that were involved in agriculture uh, through that, that 
time period, we kind of struggled looking for who is, and it always happens, right? But we were struggling kind of looking for who are the next outspoken spokespeople going to be. There's a difference mm-hmm. between people who are just plain old PR people and people that actually mm-hmm. understand this industry and bleed it, right? And feel it right. and never lose their passion for it, but also have the ability to, and it, there is a certain knack for being able to like just talk policy makers about things without off more than you, than than you want, right? You need to be direct and you need to be honest, whatever that is. But um, yeah, you were one of those people that we had pegged a long time ago. So you you, you had the not the bad kind oh. of revelation, right? <laughs> a good yeah, time. right. Uh, we uh, we hoping that you would stick with it. So this, yeah, it's good to see you. Well, it, it, and you're yeah, obviously it's kinda... a lot more fun to look at on Tuesday morning than uh, what Trent Luce will ever be. We discussed that before, though. We don't have to go back to that. He 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 won't even debate you on that. But you know, when I first got started speaking, I thought like, what's going to be my thing? I don't have a crazy cowboy hat and a mustache. Like, what's going to be my shtick? But I guess you know, I've I've kind of adjusted. I don't I don't need a mustache. I don't think anyone would want that anyway. So, right. <laughs> and Trent yeah. is just on on the loose uh, this week. So it it like I said, this is a first of him handing over the reins to me to run roll route and before we dive into some deeper topics we need to pause to take a break to hear from our sponsors lone creek cattle company offering you the opportunity to be a part of a brand of beef program now there are many brand of beef programs this one's about using the piedmontese sires from lone creek on your cows selling the calves back into the system it's all about the tenderness of the beef more details about how you can be a part of that and what the premium is. It's really no different than you're already doing. The performance is equal. We're, our performance has been fantastic. We are about to start calving. We have gotten along extremely well in the calving process of these Piedmontese sired calves. What it boils down to is if you do the right selection for all of the quality traits that you want, you can make it happen, and that's exactly what Lone Creek has done. So details about how you can be a part of this entire system at LoneCreekCattleCode.com. And Amanda Radke sitting in for me today. She will be at the Lone Creek Bull Sale that is April the 9th. In, no, the Bull Sale is April 9th, yes. Amanda coming to Broken Bow on April the 8th, Friday night, a little celebration of all things beef. And just Mama Bear is going to talk about how you protect the cubs. I'm guaranteeing you that's what she's going to do. More details, LoneCreekCattleCode.com. And we're back for the second segment of Roll Route. I'm Amanda Radke filling in for Trent Luce today. Uh, Joining me is Jay Truitt, and we just heard from his storied past of all the things that he has done in his life. And he is truly a jack of all trade, but that leads us to present day and uh, what's going on in the world. I wanted to ask you, um, I don't know if you saw the Will Smith debacle here this week. Uh, Did you, did you, did you watch, did you watch the Oscars? No. Right. I mean, um, (laughs) I haven't watched the Oscars like that. 80s i think maybe so i i'm sure i have at some point but but I, it's terrible well you're not missing out and uh 
I, you know, nobody really watches it. Uh, I was reading that right. in years past, their high was like 33 million viewers. And last year it was 10 right. million. And this year it jumped up to 15 million, but that's still pretty pathetic. Uh, but what happened if, if anybody missed it was uh, Will Smith uh, slapped Chris Rock for a joke about his wife and it, it got really tense, you know, and of course that was all the chatter yesterday as everyone was taking sides, you know, between Will Smith and Chris Rock. And at the end of the day, the only thing I was screaming was actors are going to act and they needed to boost their ratings. And yeah. that's where I lead into you. Uh, what are they distracting us from? What's actually going on in the world? Because they sure wanted us talking about this dumb Will Smith thing. Yeah, no, I think it's pretty funny that we're, uh, uh, we did, uh, we did some e-cash, um, stuff yesterday that, that, uh, came out that almost nobody is really wanting to talk. It's an interesting term. One of the people that, that, uh, believe in the end of the world, but, um, the, the unique thing is, is that it gives the ability for the treasury department to actually issue out uh, monetary uh, devices. And before, it's always been the Federal Reserve. And I know people get all freaked out about the Federal Reserve but the uh, because we don't have outsides and we don't have this and we don't have that. But the reality is for the Federal Reserve, they actually did have to answer to people. They have their own investors, U.S. government, and people that buy their securities. And so... In this particular case, now we have a political appointee has the ability to actually affect electronic money in the United States and give it away to people. And it should have been a huge story, and it literally was nowhere. No, Almost no one talked about it. Arms Economics talked about it a little bit. In one, they believe it's the beginning of the end of, of my policy as we know it i don't know that i go that far but it's a pretty it, it we're back to one of these things that happen that nobody watched that happen all the time in washington dc and it's usually while we're being distracted issue that really uh, us as normal people can't think about you and i can't do anything about right uh, and right, right. We, and we'll we can all the opinion that we want but the truth is our opinions are probably not properly informed on what the military situation is or what, you know, something else is. On eCash, we could have been, we've been pretty active. And I've got to admit, I didn't see it coming ahead of time or I talked about it last week, you know, to, to kind of get, to get it on, on people's radar. But I'll have well, a lot more details after it comes out. Well, to me, this is the issue because I see this digital currency, digital passports, you know, having your money and your vaccination status on a card or in a chip or whatever they have planned. I see this as um, truly as the mark of the beast system, because in the Bible, it tells us you cannot buy or trade without the mark. And to me, if it's right. all digital and who controls that, you could be shut off where you can't spend your money or access your funds because of your political status or because of your vaccination status. Right. And to me, it's uh, alarm bells are ringing because I think I think we need a system that's backed on real commodities, gold, silver, 
grains, whatever it might be, things of value. And I think that's what we're seeing Russia doing is moving to a commodity based system. And meanwhile, we're going all digital where, I mean, if you paid attention long enough, um, you say the wrong thing on any social media platform, they just unplug you and you're done. So what's, what's to say they wouldn't do the exact same thing with our money. No, exactly. I, again, I, uh, uh, we share, we share a common belief system, right? I, with that said, you always want to hear how this stuff begins. And I, I think this, the kinds of tools that, that those sorts of things started, right? And more importantly, it's not as though the sector already figured out some of these things. There's little, little entities called Bitcoin and et cetera, et cetera, that are worth trillions of dollars at this point. They've already figured out how to do this in the private sector. They don't need governments to do this. Governments right. are scared to death that they can't figure out how to tax this at some point. Also, Biden, uh, Biden dropped his budget bill uh, yesterday. Has giant tax increases in it. I haven't been able to read read through it yet. I just decided to go to bed last night instead of set up and read it. Um, I'll give you a breakdown by next week. No hurry on it though. And, and <laughs> I, I always tell people, I, I do tell people this, right? So the news media. This is where their side of the equation. Right? Really, honestly, and truly, the main reason that I had to get out out of day to day life in D.C. and get back to other places in the country. I can still do the same job, just come in and out. And, but I, I will tell you, I had to I had to leave because the uh, I became convinced that the what the media in Washington, D.C. was telling me was going on on a regular basis was skewing what I could actually see was going on. And yes, this so this week be a, yeah, this week, a man will be like a prime week for that. You just guess. Um, the, the, the traditional mainstream media about the Biden budget all week long. Be like, oh, and the Biden budget, this happened. The Biden budget, this happens, right? There'll be all this wringing of hands over how much money we're going to give to the pet project. Or, or we are new and exciting. They'll try to spin it. They'll try to make it sound like he's doing the reality is this morning at about nine o'clock Eastern time. So it's like in 30 or 40 minutes, you hear a big loud thud. Everybody dropping the budget in the trash. It comes mm-hmm. out. It's this giant thick piece of paper print all kinds of copies of it, handed it out to all uh, 535 members of Congress. And for the most, part outside of about 10 people on Capitol Hill, just throw it in the trash can. Nobody cares what that is because Congress develops the budget, not the president, for goodness sake. And yet the media, this whole week, will talk a little bit about the budget and, and that matters. And the truth is, it just doesn't. It's just an irrelevant wow. factor. And, and so, so just- for, from the president's right? And so is that also being used as a distraction from this e-cash thing, do you think? I mean, is that the big smoking gun this week? Or It's, I mean, it was supposed to be out this week. It was all planned, right, and coordinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be, right? But the problem is, is I, I guess when you ask that question, I hadn't thought about it until you, you took 
just said it. Uh, yeah, probably if they knew, knew that the budget would be a distraction and it would get the media coverage and somebody wouldn't talk about the other issues that were going to be behind it, really the budget doesn't matter. That's probably, in my head though, I'm thinking that and the world should have known, we should have reported already that the budget was going to come out last week. But did you see a story about that last week, right? No, no. you saw all Star Wars about how Joe Biden was doing this world tour, you know, and he went and all the, all the world order folks in Europe. And uh, lo and behold, they they, uh, they left out this. It's kind of like one of the one of the most uncovered events in Washington D.C. is for life, right? Right. I mean, it's just another. They will literally cover the fact that a street lamp burned out on the other side of the Capitol with fervor. Point the cameras down the mall at the literally hundreds of thousands of people that come to Washington, D.C. and march on pro-life type issues. And I think, again, that's those are those reasons that I ended up down. Yeah. Well, on that note, we have uh, done another segment of Roll Route, and we're going to go to a short break, and we'll be back with Jay Truitt here in just a moment. Here's what's happening today in my world. I am traveling with Teresa Thibodeau. We are going to Baird, Nebraska this morning, and then we're going to Chimney Rock, going to spend the entire day around Scott's Bluff. Tomorrow we'll be in the area of Alliance and Alliance from noon at Newberry's from noon to 1.30. Going to meet up with Jacqueline Wilson. We are rallying the troops, and yes, indeed, this girl is on fire. Just want to let you know where my travels are going to take me in the next couple of days, and then we will be on Thursday evening at there's going to be a press conference by Teresa Thibodeau at 630 in Kearney and then the Buffalo County GOP convention in Kearney. And we're back with Roll Route. I'm Amanda Radke filling in for Trent Luce today and joining me is Jay Truitt and we have talked about Will Smith. We have talked about digital currency. We've talked about the budget. And uh, before we go on to what else is on your mind, I did want to back up a little bit to this digital stuff and the things uh, that maybe have some concern for me. So you mentioned that crypto and the private industry bringing it out. And what was interesting to me was that on the Super Bowl, crypto was a major uh, advertisement that they're really trying to push people toward that, which kind of puts my spidey senses up. But what really stuck out to me this week that I read about was MasterCard has come out with a climate change credit card where it will track your carbon emissions based on your purchases and it'll shut you off once you've reached your max uh, carbon. So it'll tell you like it took this many trees to buy that shirt or you can imagine probably how they rank a cheeseburger at McDonald's. Uh, So to me, you know, it's private sector coming out with these interesting ideas and it's sold to you as voluntary. But, you know, you play this out a little bit further a few years down the road and will that one day become the norm where uh, your social credit score like they have in China is what we do in the United States of America, where I I can't purchase what I want or travel where I want or eat what I want unless it's approved by uh, someone else who's tracking all of my emissions. Oh, abs- uh, well, obviously, I mean, I think we're a lot farther down that path than what most of us believe. 
You know, one of the interesting things about this is, is that uh, even if you were to ask corporate America, so how do you measure climate change, right, impactors, right? Or what, I don't care, we don't even have like a, a, a unified term. There's as many ways to evaluate what your carbon footprint is. There are adapters between cell phone and electronic devices, right? Right. On my kitchen table, like the myriad mess of plugs because Kindle doesn't agree with my, my iPhone, doesn't agree with my old mat, old tablet versus the chargers for my earbuds versus whatever else. And, and so that's kind of what you have even inside of corporate America. Some be the drivers behind that MasterCard being one of them. But when it's all said, um, there's a difference between being a zero emissions company and some label is this. This is a people that know me know that one of the things that some people love, love what some people absolutely hate me over the stances that I've taken labeling in the past and sure. what's country of origin labeling or whether it is actual product labeling. The problem is, is that the way you want to see it is not necessarily the way everyone does it. And people, mm-hmm. instantly when you create a label standard, whether it be organic or made in USA or something else, some bureaucrat somewhere starts writing the rules for that, right? And then they, they there's inevitably exemptions and accepts to it. And so uh, you can... You can and have a product worth dealing with that, right? Have a product that everybody believes is a product of the USA, um, even beef, pork, whatever, that really may have not spent very much time in the United States. Right. Right. right? And so the, uh, uh, the the same thing applies to the climate debate. You got the zero emissions, people, zero carbon print people, and then you have the carbon sequestration people, and then you have the... Um, um, the positive carbon footprint people that are saying, oh, we sink even more carbon use when you use it. None of them, what none of them will admit is that if I buy a product, that no matter what, uh, they're just transferring their carbon to me. Right. And somehow or another, somebody is trying to track that, right? Or that emissions debt, they're trying to track that to me. Uh, what if I don't want it? Well, your choice is not it, right? Right. Uh, yeah, I. But but we can't do without this stuff. Right. Yeah, I've I've been speaking out more and more on the climate change narrative that's out there because it's so frustrating because it def- defies basic biology and and plant life and science and just uh, the essentials of life and what is required and what we get out of it. And what's really frustrating is we're never comparing apples to apples. It's always apples to oranges, like on the beef discussion, you know, that, that first report that came out from the United Nations in 2006 that, uh, you know, said the lion's share of emissions comes from the beef cow. And it was comparing the entire beef animal from pasture all the way to like shipping beef and refrigeration and, you know, cooling. Uh, but on the electricity and the transportation side, like the trans 
transportation, they only measured tailpipe emissions to create that narrative. So it's always all about who's doing the measuring and what their objective is. And we see folks like Bill Gates, who's back at it again, talking about how it's going to be impossible to get to a zero emissions cow. And so we're going to have to eat synthetic meat. And I really have to ask, Bill, are you measuring, you know, from the beginning to the end of your lab created you know, proteins and not only just the products that he thinks we're all going to eat, but um, replacing all of the byproducts we get from that beef animal with synthetic Im- imitation products, too. Like, I, the truth is absolutely on the cow's side, but the narrative every single day is the total opposite. And so, to me, that's where advocacy becomes really important because if we don't celebrate what we do well out in the world, nobody is going to do it. I mean, it's a runaway train and it never, ever stops. And so to me, I'm like, that's what I tell producer groups. We already are a sustainability success story because we produce more beef using fewer natural resources. That is the definition of sustainability. Now it is our job to convince the rest of the world of that because they're being lied to every single day. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I add this, um, um, to that argument, which is that, that the first rule in being sustainable is that there has to be enough to continue it in the first place. It's not sustainable. Right. 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 And yes. And, and can, can we do better? Right. Can we look at all, all the different ways that we could actually use our resources smarter? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the correct way to say it or or profitably or in, in a more efficient economic way. Obviously, the answer to that question is always going to be yes. We learn stuff every right. day that helps us, right? And mm-hmm. the 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 third ton diesel pickup that you you will buy today compared to the three quarter or one ton gas dually that we were driving back in the late seventies. There's no compare which one is a lot more efficient, right? It's right. a better vehicle. Right. We I drive one of those those really old trucks, but it's because I like the nostalgia of it, right? But it is mm-hmm. the brand new, sometimes the brand new stuff is way better and way more efficient, et cetera. But let's not, the, you get inside of a, a, the date and it's made plastic, the plastic fuels, and this deal was made using probable fuel, derived electricity, and all those other things. Did we really change? Nah, we just calculate it differently. I, I do think it's yeah. possible that we're going to see some revelation uh, come out the, for the beef industry over, over the next few <clears throat> and show us how we can manage some of those things, Amanda. But we'll see, right? I mean, I think during methane is not a bad idea, right? It's kind of a cool idea and selling it back to people that want to invent microchips, right? I'm all for it. Right shove it down our throat. Right. Well, I, uh, it was interesting to me because I spoke last summer in Colorado at the Colorado Livestock Association meeting. And it was right, you know, when the Pause Act was coming out and people were pretty concerned. And what really stuck out to me was what one of the owners of the largest feedlot in the you know, the world or the country, at least one of the the, the big boys. And uh, his comment was on the sustainability thing, I'm never going to be sustainable enough. You're going to keep, you know, moving the goalposts. And what he said was, yeah, a major feedlot like 
like them could absorb those costs. But eventually what you're going to do is just chase out every single consumer or, you know, small family farm that's out there because they're not going to be able to keep, you know, complying with these, you know, first voluntary things. And then ultimately uh, the, the regulations that would come. And so one could argue, well, then they're not sustainable. They shouldn't be in business, but to me, it goes counter to what's truly sustainable and that you need hubs, you know, across the country, not just a few big boys producing the food. That might be absolutely the most efficient. But when things go wrong, then, you know, you're not too big to fall either. So to me, there's some security yeah. in having a beef industry chain that's diverse and well spread out and can absorb some of the vulnerabilities that we have. And so I think that's kind of maybe the counter to that is that uh, uh, bigger isn't necessarily always better and that uh, the beef industry compared to poultry or pork has been able to maybe avoid some of that vertical integration to allow for people to do it differently across the United States. We've got one Agreed. minute if you have yeah, a comment on that. Now, I'm just going to say, I, I mean, uh, I think the the everything that you said is absolutely true. I think what is interesting is that, honestly, the industry can't be vertically integrated in the same way that we do pork and poultry, right? It's just not possible. The land mass that's required said, it doesn't mean that, that we have to just take this and assume that people should dictate to us in the industry what's going to happen. We, if, if I do make this argument and I make it at NCBA and to my friend everywhere in between, don't ask the government to fix you. Fix this problem. And if you think there needs to be a solution, work at it really, really hard, but you have to fix this problem for yourself. Please, if the government and, does it, they will screw it up. And on that note, yes, we need to fix it for ourselves. And we're going to talk about solutions in the last segment of Roll Route. We'll be right back. And now we talk about immune health. We talk about health in general. The world's authority on nitric oxide production. Dr. Nathan Bryan explains. We've got about 14 COVID clinics around the U.S. where we have a, a nitric oxide drug trial going on. I'm exposed to COVID probably every day. You know, pre-COVID, we as humans are exposed to viruses and bacteria every day of our life. That's just the world we live in. Some people get sick, some people don't. Why do some people get sick and why do others not? It all boils down to their ability to generate nitric oxide and to have certain things replete in their body like vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C, selenium. If you're nutrient deficient, you're going to get sick. If you can't make nitric oxide, you're going to get sick. If you do all these things, you can be exposed to, to COVID or any other virus, and your immune system nips it in the bud, and you don't get sick from it. It's really that simple. We're going to change this ordering process up to make it simpler. Go to loosetailsmedia.com. Loosetailsmedia.com. There will be an order mechanism there, and if you want more of the science, I'll get that to you from Dr. Nathan Bryan. Loosetailsmedia.com. It's N-O-2-U. The, the product's the same. The place you get it is different. And we're back with Roll Route. I'm Amanda Radke filling in for Trent Luce. Alongside me is Jay Truitt. And I'm sure we could spend a whole hour talking about mandatory country of origin labeling. And I just want to talk about it for a few minutes before we switch gears. Uh, but what you said in the last segment is exactly where I'm at, is that there is a 
uh, divisiveness in our beef cattle industry today uh, over labeling and what the solution is to help the U.S. beef producer. And I kind of sit in the same camp where I think if you're asking the government to fix your problems, you've already lost the battle because the government is going to make it worse. Right. Uh, so, I, and I get beat up for it a lot too, the same as you do. So I guess, can you touch briefly on why that's kind of your position and you know what maybe the challenges are of mandatory country of origin labeling or maybe even better, what the solution would be in your mind? Yeah, I'm not... Uh... I'm not for sure that I've really come up with the with the, the perfect solution, and I have spent really like 15 or 20 years of my life trying to figure out how to actually weave through those cones and get it done. I do think it's one of those things we should be able to do. I said in the beginning that my family came from the cotton and the cattle business, and mm-hmm. cotton made in the USA has become a premier label. A premier mm-hmm. label added a lot of value into the system in the United States. And so I do know can work. That that right. one thing. Right? Um, the the second side of it is, is though is that if we're not careful, you're actually putting some producers in some parts of the country actually at a disadvantage because international borders some places in the United States are not as relevant as they are others for how the trade and natural exchange of goods would occur from it's not involved at all. Mm-hmm. That does not mean I support a North American label. That's not what I'm saying. You're out of way that um, the natural exchanges that take place sometimes between the Dakotas and Canada, between Montana and Canada or Washington and Oregon and, and parts of Canada, um, we, we have to figure that out in the same South, South Texas. The reality is, though, 95% or so of the product that U.S. consumes is product of these that was born, raised, and processed here, right? That's just mm-hmm. a that's mathematical fact. We, right. And until we can figure out a way to actually translate prices, I thought this was all going to be really easy when I started working on it. And this goes to the 90s, right? And I sat down with one of the big packers. doesn't really matter because uh, that packing company doesn't even exist anymore. And every time somebody talks, concentration just keeps building. I remind them that all the packings I met with in the 90s don't today. Only Cargill even remains out of that list. And at that time, they were like a calculator. Um, that, uh, uh, and now they're one of the big three. But they weren't one of the big three back then. Right. But I met with senior leadership of one of the big, big packing companies. We talked about this. He goes, tell me what to put on it. And I said, how much money can we charge extra for it? He goes, nothing. Hmm. Because if it charge, if you if you charge more for that product, it will sell less. Tons. Right. And 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 I and so I think the whole approach. I became convinced of this when I was working with retailers later on. They figured out a way um, to begin to differentiate product at retail. Um, it really in a in a really professional way in a in about the year two thousand to two thousand and four, somewhere in that bracket. Mm-hmm. And and I think we should let the retailers lead this discussion. 
and develop it. And then capital people do not because they don't like, like being told what they have. Uh, but if you're really right. going to make a system work, you're going to have to actually be able to defend that label all the way through. And if you're a cotton right. producer, you know, and, and that product is going to be certified, it gets certified from day one and through, right? I mean, somebody is paying yep. to have those certifications done. It's right. I'm sorry, but it's, it's going to be a tough, um, again, I, and it became a market driven solution that later the government, that's right. I don't have any issues with that. If we want to try to have the government police it, I, you know, I'm not for sure what to do uh, on that front. Um, the reality is they will always try to do it. I made it, listen, I made a living for about two years of my life getting exempted, eligible for organic status. That's why when I wow. organic on a label, I don't even bother to turn around and look at the other side because I know there's all kinds of crazy things that you can still do to <laughs> that product. And I did it. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. whether that's good or bad, I, I kind of think it's a joy, but whatever. Uh, right. I, I mean, the government is well, not going to do this well. But. Right. No, totally agree. I mean, look <laughs> at anything the government runs. It is not well done or efficient. And, and, and that, you know, like you said, you have friends on both the RCAF and NCBA side, as do I. And I kind of just land right in the middle. And where I, I fall is, okay, we can advocate for meaningful change in Washington, D.C., but we're going to be waiting a long, long time. And in the meantime, how many of us are going to go bankrupt or go out of business? So I'm, to me, I want to spend my time and energy looking for meaningful change right now that's going to help my family survive. So if I think the system's broken, if I think the packer isn't giving me a fair shake, if I think I'm not getting the price I want, I have to change my own my mindset to becoming a price maker instead of a price taker. And that's where innovation and creative marketing and reaching direct to yeah. the consumer or trying to own that animal longer in the supply chain or like we see all of these small and mid-sized processors starting back up again. I think that's the stuff that's going to keep our industry robust and competitive. And I can gripe all day long about the big, big evil packer. But at the end of the day, I can't change that overnight. The only thing that I can change is my business model and try to figure out how I'm going to capture value in order for me to be profitable and stay in business. And and you're what you're the statement that you last sentence there is like one of the most important ones that we have to recognize inside the industry, which is that capture value. That means that you have to be happy with the value that you produce, mm-hmm. and and yeah. and understand that somebody may be producing a product that has a higher value than you, and that you have up that into your game as well, right? And that th- there's going to be people that could go at after the commodity market, that's fine. But understand your commodity prices for commodity. If you're going to go after yeah. a higher value market, uh, you're going to have to actually produce something a little bit different. It's probably going to cost you more to do it. You're going to have to do things differently. You can't just pick the cattle Absolutely. that you like. Uh, and and right. I come from that, right? I mean, we've, we've all done that. We, uh, I was laughing at, at, at somebody. We are having a conversation. I was with some guys yesterday and they said well and I said well I'm now out 
looking at cows at a pack, but uh, the truth is the cow really looking at the most is one that lost her calf, and I still don't want to sell her because, man, she's just a beautiful specimen of a cow, you know, and I really right. like this. My father trained me that cow becomes hamburger. No matter what happens in the fall, you either sell yep. the calf or the cow or mm-hmm. both. With that said, we're to abandon principles because our own emotion gets tied up in something, right? And I have to have a black animal or a red or a gray or a white or whatever. I mean, forget that. Right. Um, if you just if you if you're gonna pick your poison, pick your poison. I, w- I want to go back though a little bit on the country of origin labeling. The interesting yeah. thing was when we first started the country of origin labeling debate in this country. It's a pretty cool little label that had already been put together by some people out in California, and they were doing a pretty good job of actually getting the marketing started into San Francisco and some other places, which are pretty tough to sell. And we killed those programs with government regulations. People need to think about that. We've had opportunities before they killed because we were so determined to try to figure out those Canadians to the floor and to stop Mexican cattle from coming into the three or four that they come into in uh, uh, the panhandle of Texas, that that we killed what was a really good effort in one of our target consumer market, right? Right. Selling into San Francisco is one of those that influences what happens in food in a lot of other places. And so, lo and behold, we shot ourselves in the foot just so that we could have the government, with a B, not a V, try to tell us how we need to do our business, you know. And, and somehow or another, we thought we were going to punish somebody. And lo and behold, it didn't work anyway. There's also international law and the ability to export and all that stuff, which also matters. Right, right. So, and I probably one of my favorite one of my favorite stories, many people know that I'm a longtime blogger in the beef industry, and, and now my blogs uh, have moved uh, that folks can find them at amandaradkey.com. But one of my favorite stories is I had written about, you know, going to be a price maker instead of a price taker, because if we sit around and wait for change to happen, we're all bankrupt. And I had a guy call me up and he was so mad. And he said, you're selling a fairy tale, Amanda. You know, that's impossible. I, you know, raise hundreds of head each year. And there's no way that I could, you know, go into a value added system. And I said, you know, the beef industry is hard. You know, just pick your hard. And and right now, if you feel like you're drowning, you got to do something different. And a year later, he called me back and he said, um, Amanda, do you know how much beef I sold off the ranch this year? And and I had said, well, probably none because of your bad attitude. And he he had moved $40,000 worth of beef because he lived right outside of Denver and just started plugging away right. at it. Uh, so as we wrap, we've got 30 yeah. seconds. Do you got any final words? Listen, I, I do think that that's the perfect way, way to end, 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 right? We We like to believe that we're not in control. Because with that, we get a whole lot of excuses for a lot of things that go on. One of the difficult things that we have to accept somewhere within this whole process is that to the very best of our ability, we're going to control our own destiny. And that we're not going to ask somebody else to do that for us. And is it harder? Yeah. And may we fail? Maybe. But at the end of the day, we know what won't work. Right. We know what won't work. Well, controlling what you do. 
Awesome. Well, controlling what you can and being empowered to take action in your own life. Thank you, Jay Truitt, for helping me on this edition of Roll Route. We have journeyed down the road connecting urban and rural America. I'm Amanda Radke, here to remind you that all roads do lead to a Roll Route. A huge thank you today to Amanda Radke. Uh, Jay Truitt, as always, I just appreciate having friends you can rely on. Hey, you know what? I could get used to this. Amanda, she could just take over, don't you think? AmandaRadke.com. Keep track of all of my endeavors on my Facebook channel and LooseTalesMedia.com. We'll see you on the dot-com road down the trail.